got these illustrations from dave from dave eggers dave, yeah and they're just like i don't even understand them it's like this beautiful hand-drawn picture of a pig and it says like cowardice as plentiful as sand what it's, dave so first of all um just accept the art for what it is well but it doesn't make any sense like it doesn't one of them like a weasel threatens to like rewind my clocks or something uh <laughs> Not quite, but yeah. So, so the whole concept behind this is that Dave Eggers, uh, like went to school for like illustration or something like uh -huh. that. Yeah, and some annoying Dave Eggers thing. Yeah, and yeah. um, he loves like obviously he started to write, you know, and yeah. like realized that he wasn't that great of an illustrator, but he's he's good at China markers. Uh huh. And so, like many years ago, like you know, fifteen, he found himself drawing animals with china markers from like 10 p.m to like midnight but it's the captions well, just, that are getting i'm getting there so this is the best part yeah so he was like sitting around drawing like a capybara at like 10 p.m on a tuesday uh -huh. and like that's a very like melancholy activity for a very melancholy time yeah and so he started to think about like what these animals would maybe like think or kind of like abstract thoughts that kind of go with them like if it was said by them and that so, feels like you're giving him too much credit though no that's what the little essay in the book says oh, there's a little essay in the book yeah there's a little essay wow. in the book okay um because it came with a little book but yeah so there was like he, a like, lot of published this and like everybody bought it <laughs> is that the idea yeah yeah i mean it's fun the, like, the illustrations are beautiful this little capybara that's like looking at me that says why did your grandfather send you this picture of me? That's that's lovely. Thank you, Dave. Dave needs to post more. He does. Like need he needs that. That would be a far more useful outlet than him like sitting in his drawing room with art. Like he needs to just he needs to get on and just start doing memes. Like that would be a more useful. Yeah, and we've spent entirely too much time on this. Welcome, <laughs> welcome <laughs> to this episode of Print Run. Eric is perplexed. My name is Eric Hain. And with me, as always, is Laura Zatz. I'm not perplexed. Say hello, Laura. Hello. Um, today is what? February 5th? Sure is. I never remember the date. Um, today's February 5th. We've got a wonderful episode for you today about various awards and book forms and such. So how about how about the basic rundown before we get to any of that, huh? Yeah. So um, we will have our query show going live this week. So if you are a member of our Patreon, then you will have access to that at $3 a month. And if you want to upgrade to a whole eight, $8 a month, that's $2 a week, mm -hmm. um, you will have access to all three of our special episodes, our query episode, our first pages, and our writing by reading. Send us your first pages and queries. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. So, Eric, I have some I have some news that I would like to impart to you on uh -huh. this, the sacred show. What do we got? J.K. Rowling is once again trash. Oh, this is like my favorite topic of conversation. I know. I know. This is why I'm so excited to tell you about um, it. But so, um, well, what did she do this time? Well, as a reminder, J.K. Rowling had 
has been trashed for various reasons before, uh-huh. one of which is, you know, advocating for Donnie Depp's casting of Grindelwald uh-huh. in the, you know, Fantastic Beast series after he had been accused of domestic abuse. Uh-huh. Um, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff um, for naming a character Cho Chang, which is not a specific... Um, like a specific Asian country's like set of names. Oh, I forgot about. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, she is now the worst once again because <laughs> the Fantastic Beast sequel, um, is featuring Grindelwald and Dumbledore. And as we know, in 2007, J.K. Rowling said, "Hey, after all the books were out, hey, did you know that Dumbledore was gay?" Did people? Uh, so yeah, that was wild, right? Because yes. So she just, just so I understand this correctly, and you, I think, know, you're, like, more familiar with this landscape than I am. She just, like, said one day, she just, like, announced that actually with no basis, with no textual evidence of any kind or without any sort of, um, like, narrative through line to point to, she just said, actually, Dumbledore is gay as sort of a means of, like, scoring woke points or well, what? Well, no. She, so I think it was on her website or something. Anyway, uh-huh. it was, like, a forum question. Yeah. And, like, a reader asked her, yeah. was... Uh, was Dumbledore ever in love? Yeah. And in her response to that, she said, well, I always sort of thought of Dumbledore as gay. Huh. Um, and so, you know, like <clears throat> Dumbledore is gay, right? And so that's kind of when when she brought it up. Um, so this none of this is in the books or anything like that. It's just something that she said afterward. But now that we have this kind of prequel, the story of Dumbledore as a young man, Falling yeah. in love with Grindelwald. Right. Guess what? Not okay. going to be in the movie. Um, so, yeah, she wrote the movie. Uh-huh. Didn't put it in the movie. Um, so now she's saying, don't worry, he's still gay. It's just not in the movie. <laughs> so she almost, it's almost like, it's just this whole thing is just so stupid to me. Because she first tried to do something that's completely unreasonable. Which is to impose herself on... A text that are that had already been published and written. Let's right? talk for a second about yeah, why that's unreasonable. Well, it's just because so ba- the basic idea here is that once you write something, and this is true whether we're talking about issues like this or anything else, like all of a sudden you want to decide one of your characters is any other trait that they may not have presented in the book. Like it's it doesn't work because you're relying you're using forces and material outside the book itself to change the text right like it has like anything that isn't in the book is now being used as something that can like influence what's on the page like suddenly you can just like decide one day as the author that um you know a character is a certain way like that kind of it sort of lessens the craft of writing doesn't it like isn't that the whole point that if that's true then there should be evidence of it in the text well it's denying readers kind of that that two-way street right yeah. so there's two parts of what a text is there's what the author intended and put it on the put on the page yeah. and then what the reader gets from it so like you might remember us having a similar conversation when Essie Hinton and um when a when a when a reader asked Essie Hinton who wrote the outsiders um, oh, back in yeah. 1962 about whether Pony Boy is gay. Oh, yeah, yeah, And yeah, yeah. Essie Hinton got really upset and was saying, absolutely not. Like, uh-huh. you're, you know, a bad reader, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
But that was different because that reader was using what was actually in the text. Right. Well, both, um, I would say that bo- in both instances they are. It just so happens that here we're dealing with an absence of any sort of evidence. And there this, this person was dealing with what they were seeing evidence. as evidence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there, I mean, there is kind of this impulse, I think, in in modern authorship to not want to hand over the reins to your story because you can always add more. You know, you can always do a sequel. You can always have a, you know, Wizarding World of Harry Potter and, you know, a play and a this and a that and a, and a theme questions. park. Yes, that's the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. I forgot what it's called. That's okay. Um, but you can always keep it going right and as as a brand you want to keep it going because that's where the money is like that's what a franchise is but that's that's such a cynical reason for trying to like read the winds of the conversation in modern book publishing and say hey if i you know quick say that this character is gay just for the hell of it as a means of like trying to come across as someone who's particularly progressive or something in my writing you know more so than she certainly was clearly based on you know all these other things we're talking about like it just it not only it feels like completely disingenuous on a craft level but it's also sort of condescending to the sort of conversations we've been having in publishing about all this stuff like just to be able to like flippantly say oh well my character one of my characters is this like it sort of undercuts I think a lot of you know what I think is real work that's getting done in by writers by writers yeah. who are actually trying to do the work on the page and that's the other thing right it's like you know this lack it also suggests like a misunderstanding about the need for evidence on some of this stuff um because you know when people when people read you know we've talked about this with race a lot too on this show like you know white writers you know all the time they will go an entire book Without mentioning race once, and the implicit suggestion is that, or the explicit um, idea is that all the characters are white because that's what they are perceiving as, you know, neutral or like, you know, colorblind or colorless or whatever. Like, they are operating from a place where white is the default. White is the default, yeah. exactly. And in a similar way, I think that, um, you know, in on issues like this, like, you know, straight is the default. And so if you're going to, um, you know, create a character who is gay, you probably have to do a little bit of work because otherwise you're just kind of caving to like whatever your most cynical notion of tokenism is. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's, I don't know, it, it's to me, it's, it kind of suggests so. Yeah. I, I think that doing that work is really important, not just because, you know, somebody who shares an identity seeing somebody who, you know, on the page is gay, like that's important, right? Um, but I also think that this kind of like, retroactive act of creating representation in your book when it's not there also is like a just like bad authorship like it's a fundamental misunderstanding of how readers read and of what it means to like write a book yes 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 exactly (laughs) i mean it's it's refusing to have your work engage with what you know your readers are going to think right and in the western you know the english-speaking western world no matter who you are as a reader when you are taught to read when you are given books you are taught to assume that that normal 
is, you know, straight, cis, gender, white, male, right? And And so many, and so much of the conversations we're trying to have about, you know, authorship and representation is about moving those perceived defaults. It's about dismantling that that teaching of readers. And so for her to kind of suggest that it's that easy to just kind of flippantly say it suggests what is clearly a, it's a willfully ignorant position on that level of, you know, that sort of engagement with the text that most readers have. And, and you know it's crap because here she was given a second chance. You She's know, to, giving an opportunity. She was, you know, this thing that she claimed was true, you know, would theoretically now make itself apparent in this new opportunity to tell and Dumbledore's story. And important to the plot. It, exactly. Yeah. And, it's, and it's not there again and she's choosing it not to be there because it wasn't there the first time which would have probably been fine except she decided to like try to pull something and it's just i don't know it's a a little bit irritating but um and i just think more than anything apart from any sort of political you know identity based issue it mostly just suggests a fundamental misunderstanding of the author's relationship with the written text yeah which is that you don't get and the yeah exactly which is you just don't get to impose yourself on things after they're written and out there. Like, you don't get to say how stuff is. People can are working with the text itself. If you're lucky, you might get to do a foreword or an afterword, <laughs> like a letter from but the author. But even that is separate, you know? Like it, it's, yeah, it's totally separate. Sometimes it's not even included in the audiobook or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, like, a lot of, a lot of people's gut reaction is to say, well, you know what? It's Hollywood. Like, it's not her choice. Well, she wrote the book. Yeah. And she wrote the screenplay. Yeah. And she has unprecedented amount of control over her over her you know IP her internet inter, yeah her intellectual property, and she's on this great global stage. And now all she wants is people to say, "It's okay, we know he's gay. We'll wait, you know, seven movies for you to make him gay. Yeah, you know, maybe well, he'll also, like have a longing glance or something." But, yeah. Ugh. She also spends a lot of time like online being the pontificator of you know, progressive value in a way that feels pretty disingenuous. So it just, it all kind of adds up to a rather unsavory picture. Yeah, even me, but. even if you as a listener are, are less interested in the whole like representation of LGBTQ characters on screen, which is sorely lacking along with any other sort yeah. of representation, just like you should be mad about that, but you should also be mad separately about the just the bad writering she doesn't understand what writing a book is here and it's or she does and she's willfully trying to undercut that i'm just thinking she can pull in past every time something like this happens eric it's just like my joyful memories of reading harry potter as a kid just gets chipped away because so much of the conversation around harry potter is not harry potter yeah but you were you were calling me uh whatever puff Last week, you were telling a me Hufflepuff. I, no, 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 no. A Slitherpuff. Yeah, it was that. Yeah. You were telling me I had to like sort myself into a house. Well, are we still doing that, or are we no longer sorting ourselves into houses? No, we're definitely sorting ourselves into houses <laughs> because because that's what you would do as a reader. Like you'd read about Harry and you'd go, "Oh, I want to be a Gryffindor," or "Oh, I'm definitely a Ravenclaw." Like that is engaging everybody, with the text. Everybody thinks they're a Ravenclaw. I don't. No one will ever wants to admit they're a Hufflepuff. Um. But, Actually, Minnesotans love to call themselves Hufflepuffs. God damn it. I hate this conversation. Um, <laughs> let's do a different conversation anyway, as okay. such. Um, the National Book Award. Yes. Hard turn. My favorite NBA. Your second favorite NBA. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the National Book Award has broadened its portfolio, so to speak. Mm. Right. It is now diversified. Diversified its bonds. Um, <laughs> Stocks and bonds. So, um the National Book Award has decided that it's allowing for uh, translated literature. So they're adding a new in, category? They're adding a new category. 
um, which I think is kind of exciting. It opens it up to um, translators from anywhere in the world translating things into English, and obviously it includes then books written by authors all over the world. Um, That's exciting. It is exciting, but so it also, to me, it changes what the National Book Award is, at least, maybe it doesn't change what it is, but it changes the way that I think a lot of people are going to think about it. What do you mean by that? Well, because people think of it, um, when they hear national, when they hear the like National Book Award, and specifically that first word, you know, national, right? Um, we think of it in terms of like this writing contest from an author within the nation, right? Like we've got a, you know, it's a, you know, a national book award is something that should be for an American author, you know, and that's not a completely unreasonable, um, perception. And it's one that obviously like when we're going to talk about the man booker here in a minute, as it relates to, but, um, you know, it changes because suddenly now the writer of origin doesn't have to be American. But even more significantly, I think I was sort of expecting when I heard this at first before I had read that the, that maybe the translator would mm-hmm. have to be American, which is also not the case. It's just anybody. And I think that, yeah. you know, and I was I was actually really in a way I was sort of excited for maybe in, you know, a trend um, having a stipulation that the translator be American because that would sort of place this emphasis on the artistic value of translation mm-hmm. as sort of like a creative task in and of itself. And it's like American translators can now be given awards um, on the same level as like a novel or something. Mm-hmm. And, um, but that's not even what this is. I think it's even more interesting than that because what you're left with to me is the only truly national bit about this to the extent that you care about it and – when you call something the National Book Award, you ostensibly do, right? Like there is, and you are claiming that there's something American about this award. Um, the only thing that is inherently American at this point is the decision to publish it, right? Hmm. The only truly American bit is the has house. To be it has in to be the house. And so what that gets at, I think, is it's becoming less of a, at least for this specific category, you know, the other ones are a different story, but broadening it out like this makes it less of a writing award Mm. because uh, well one because there's now an added layer of translation into english you know um and it makes it it makes it an essentially a publishing award Mm. it makes it a based on this decision to acquire a book that you think could succeed in an american market that isn't currently in it and publishing it in english for an american audience and i find that to be fascinating in a lot of ways because I think we're kind of conditioned to think of these contests, um, especially the Man Booker, um, as writing contests. Yeah. You know, like craft contests, like the best writer gets this award. But here, what really I think the you know the with the filter specifically being the house, and the decision to publish as being the American thing that gets you entered. Um, it's now it's almost like there's a creative act to choosing to publish something in translation yeah. that I think is really long overdue and worthwhile. Do you know what reinforces that idea, which I think is a very good and interesting one, um, is that for this particular category, the author and the translator will win the award jointly. Yeah. So a lot of the time... Neither of whom have to be American. Yes, correct. Right. Correct. But because the translator is on equal footing with mm-hmm. the writer, mm-hmm. it's, you know, the translation is, you know, most times just... Um, it's organized by the publisher. You know, yeah. it's an integral part of the publishing yeah, process. Totally. So now it's we will give you an award for this part of the publishing process. And you know, 
all of the translators listening to this might go, well, the translating is an art. Yes, it is. But I'm saying in, in terms of the in terms of the the structure of of kind of is this for writing or is this for publishing? Um, the fact that a part of the publishing process is put on equal footing with the writing. Yeah. Um, does highlight the the publisher in a really interesting way. Yeah. <clears throat> I can I shift a little bit and yeah. talk. So one of the things um, I in the in the press release about the National Book Award, um, Lisa Lucas is quoted, um, and I love Lisa Lucas. She's the executive director of the National Book Foundation. Yeah, she's, um, she's come into town a couple of times and spoken, yeah. and she is just like, I just yeah, I like. She's she's amazing. Anyway, yeah, she yeah. does lots of good things for books. Anyway, um, she was ex- she was describing the addition of of this this new category by saying this is an opportunity for us to influence how visible books in translation are. Mm-hmm. The less we know about the rest of the world, the worse off we are. Which is a really interesting idea. Yeah, because the same week. The Guardian got a hold of a letter, a private letter that hasn't yet been sent to the man booker. Um, but 30 different publishers signed a letter to have the the organizers of the man booker award um, go back to the original rules of eligibility um, because which means no Americans, which means no Americans. Let's just let's cut to the chase. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. It means no Americans um, because. Because um, we keep winning. Because we keep winning. So they, they're they worried that if they don't go back, they risk a, quote, homogenized literary future. Um, they're also, you know, they're worried about the diversity of the prize going away. So when Americans weren't, you know, eligible, um, you know, there were a lot more other people, obviously. So in the last year, when American when Americans have been eligible, they've, you know, won twice out of the last four years. Right. And um, gotten three out of the six finalist spots in this last round, mm-hmm. um, which, yes. But there's this interesting idea of, you know, both of these groups are arguing for more voices, but in very different ways. So I think taken in tandem, you know, this kind of, you know, taking these two kind of case studies we've got here, like on the one hand, you've got the National Book Award saying that um, now we're going to create a category that is going to be won perhaps by writers and translators neither of whom have to be american and then on the other hand on this man booker um idea where people are kind of mad that american presses exist in the sphere at all um you know they're worried about you know americans sort of overrunning the award and how like them us like kind of crossing into their national award um has a, a tendency to sort of wash out you know the writers you know in their you know, in their own country who would, uh, you know, be kind of use this award as a chance for exposure and everything. Right. And to me, it gets at this idea of like literary borders. Right. Because we're talking in a lot of ways about like nations. We're talking about a national book award and like the man booker isn't explicitly a national award, but, you know, British people think it is. Yeah. You know, they they treat it that way. There are and, uh just just FYI, 2.5 billion people potentially eligible for the Man Booker yeah. Award because it's UK, Ireland <clears throat> and all of the Commonwealth countries. Yeah. Um which is 2.5 billion people, but yeah. it just, you know, it has to be published in 
Um, yeah. It has to be published in the UK and it has to be in English. But like the idea is, you know, there's we're sort of drawing these national lines in these awards, and they're they're sort of the defining premise of the awards, and that's what we're that's what we're arguing about now, or, or that's what at least the Man Booker people are arguing. About. I don't think anyone has expressed too much frustration yet with the translation category on the American side, but. Um, to me, there's something, it kind of gets at this idea that I've been thinking about it all day, and I want to call it, like, literary citizenship, mm. you know, because what this translated category almost does is it takes two, it takes two things, you know, a, a book written by someone who's not American and translated by someone who doesn't have to be American, but publishing it in the States and therefore, like, giving it almost, like, in literary terms, like American citizenship, you know what I mean? And like yeah. giving it a category and, you know, and you almost see the same sort of language here that we do when we talk about other sorts of, you know, national, you know, and or you know, if you want to even go into like immigration debates and stuff, you know, she's talking about how, you know, the less we know about the rest of the world, the worse off we are, you know, language like that, you know, this is an opportunity for us to influence how visible books and translation are these things that, um, sort of suggests this innate good in broadening what it means to be American and yeah. kind of understanding that. In service of globalization. Exactly. Yeah. Like, and it's, I think that's, um, I don't know, I find that really fascinating. And I find the flip side of that, you know, on the Man Booker side where they're saying, actually, this American behemoth, and that's that's what we are, you know, in a lot of ways. There's lots and lots of writers here, you know, there's sort of this idea that if you let us into the category, we've got so many writers doing so many things that... We're probably going to win it a few times, and suddenly the British author who may not, who may have not had a shot, is you know going to get washed out. But um, there, there is an odd, you know, with with your your citizenship argument, there is there's an odd element of colonialism here. Oh yeah. Um. So the Man Booker rules, like the the book has to be published in English in the UK, mm-hmm. right? But all of the Commonwealth countries are eligible. So you can be a writer from from Zimbabwe, and as long as you're published in the UK and in English, yeah. then you're eligible. Right. And so there is this interesting, um, there's this interesting idea is that, you know, like writers from all of these Commonwealth countries is the diversity, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Whereas, you know, there's there's kind of this like old colonial fear that the Americans, you know, the British speaking American upstarts, mm-hmm. right, will will come over and, and further diminish that colonial legacy right. that the that the Brits have. Right. right? But I, I think that that English focus. Right. And that publishing in the UK focus. Yeah. Doesn't make this a you know, naturally colonial British award. I think it's just like, honestly, it it feels like it's just sort of opened up to writers of those countries to kind of reinforce the the importance of it being in English. Oh, I think the English thing is a fascinating subplot of all this as a a necessary condition because in the same way that, um, you know, we're talking now like with the, you know, I, I really, I view this translated literature category as a really like broadening of, you know, a lot of concepts that we've used to sort of define literary awards in, you know, in this country, because, um, you know, I just keep harping on, it, you know, foreign authors, foreign translators um, can now win an American award just by virtue of being with an American press. But the other bit of it is that the book has to be in English. Yeah. Right. And in a way, if we're using the analogy of like national citizenship, you know, as your know, literary citizenship, 
it's almost like we're enforcing a national language, which is the sort of thing that, you know, I think, you know, most people with any sort of progressive value would view as a bad thing, you know. And so I wonder if um, at the end of the day, and this is it's not a direct analog because, you know, the most the people, you know, the book market in America is primarily English speaking. But um, are we going to reach a point where, you know, a national book award can be can be won by a book in Spanish? Mm. You know, I, I think we might be headed that way. And I think that's really I think that's really interesting. That I think that's really, really yeah. like because those those things are as American, you know, as something written in English. You know what I mean? Like we don't have a national language in America. And as no. we continue to kind of reevaluate these ideas, um, I wonder if there's not a chance to kind of continue to broaden that finger for like this sort of beachhead of a translated literature category doesn't represent a chance for um you know, an increasing definition of what it means to be, you know, an American literary award winner. And and I don't know, that's that's really cool. And so I like this. Yeah, but. that's exciting to me, I think, you know, that that accessibility, you know, the especially in 2018, when so much of America is kind of shutting down and, and, yeah. and pulling in, you know, that kind of outreach in in content. And I think that's what the man booker was trying to get to when they opened up their eligibility. Mm-hmm. Right. They were attempting that globalization. Um, but, you know, four years with with changed rules does not um, a good uh, sample make. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see um, who is shortlisted this next year. Yeah. Hopefully we'll guess correctly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um. <laughs> I'm feeling real cold. I was came into it last year, so feeling really like I was I had a beat on it. But yeah. So I want to before we wrap this up, the last thing you said it at the beginning. You know, the yes. people at the Man Booker, um, these this kind of coalition of presses who are kind of wishing it would remain a British award. Um, they talk about this quote unquote danger of a homogenized, you know, literary culture. You know, and I wonder about that because it's sort of it sort of feels a little nationalistic to me, you know what I mean? Like, you kind of get this idea that, like, well, you know, globalism is bad, and, you know, all these things that kind of cross all these borders, you know, it's not great, and we, you know, we need to, you know, foster, you know, these sort of separate, you know, cultures in order to, you know, keep everything that's good. And on the one hand, you see it, right, where, like, maybe this offers the opportunity to heighten the... um be find you know find specifically British authors who um, wouldn't wouldn't otherwise be be published. But I do I wonder like what's your take on just like the idea of like a homogenized literary culture? Like do you, like does it matter to you? Do you care? Like yeah. So this is a really interesting idea to me because like on its face you know kind of just like certain worldwide like like widely loved books across all nations is not as exciting to me as a book of a particular place and of a particular people. Right. Yeah. Um, so that, I mean, like I understand, I think what they're going for is like, it's yeah. important to have totally. books that are really important in England and books that are really, you know, and dealing with that colonialist history versus, you know, American and kind of American racial issues and kind of uh, going, you know, with all of those different focuses. However, um, I I think that the man booker is not in a place to make an argument for something like that as yeah. being a bad thing because the man booker is not about 
a book that most well represents a nation or it's not, you know, the best right. book of the year. Like yeah. the Man Booker is... It's not is, the National Book Award. No, it's, 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 it's by reputation and by design a highly subjective and quirky yes. as hell yes. award. Yeah. And the Man Booker, you know, I think... I think these publishers are all upset about it because the man Booker is the one award out of all of the awards that can like guarantee a bestseller status with the winner. Right. Yeah. Um, Just because people trust it, you know, even though it's six, like just different people every year going, this is my favorite book, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and it's, it's six people. It's not, you know, it doesn't look at sales. It doesn't look at any of that. It's just six people trying to find their best book. Yeah. Right. And so I think that the argument for the, you know, national diversity of the prize and a homogenized literary future, like the man Booker is the wrong prize to make that argument with. I think that they're just mad that those bestsellers might not be coming to them. Yeah. No, I mean, it's well, it's to me, it comes from this place of where they unofficially want it to be the official book award of britain yes without it actually being that yes you know and over here and that's and that's what i think is so interesting you know specifically as i've said like that makes this national book award stuff here in the states so interesting because it is expressly the book award of america you know what i mean like it's the (laughs) national book award um and so i don't know i mean i guess like you know i get the idea of like you know the how why like a homogenized book culture as these people see it might be something that they'd want to push back against because it doesn't necessarily um allow for a lot of books to be elevated right exactly but that isn't necessarily the purpose of the award in the first place right in a lot of ways so i don't know i mean it's it's worth thinking about but i guess like today as we were kind of researching it like this idea of broadening um not only these ideas of, you know, what's American, right? Like, because now we've got, you know, foreign authors and foreign translators, you know, potentially and by all means probably winning, you know, our expressly national award. But even just what the award is for, right? Like, I do think it's interesting that it, you know, that becomes now a publishing award more so than a writing award. And I love that kind of stuff. You know, I love when, um, you know, because one, uh, I love when translated lit, and things like that, you know, that or that decision to do it um, is rewarded, you know, to the press itself, too. And that's, um, I don't know, like that, that gets me excited because I'm into it. I'm really excited for it. Well, because the effort, you know, the effort, like, you know, as it says in the, you know, in the Times article on it, um, translated literature is pretty marginalized as like a big selling yeah. point. Here There's in this the idea like, no that nobody reads it, right? right? But then you've got, you know, the whole. Like, you've got all yeah. of these best-selling authors who are translated. Yeah. You know, you've got Murakami. You've got, you know, the whole um, magical realism movement. Yeah. You know, like, it sells. It does sell. I mean, but those are, you know, there's, like, exceptions. But I think, like, you know, the market for it is still, you know, kind of small. And what they're kind of seeing is, like, it does need to be broader if our national literary scene is meant to reflect whatever it is we actually think you know, the country should be. And I find those kind of conversations really interesting. And I find publishers being at the forefront of it and being rewarded for efforts to like maybe take a risk on a translated work that, you know, no one in the States has heard of yet um, and potentially reaping reward from that. I find that, I find that to be really worthwhile. I have a question for you. Yeah. If 
you, Eric Hain, were putting together your like ideal literary award, mm-hmm. what would be the eligibility requirements and the purpose? Oof, man. That's a We didn't prep this. Yeah, no, this we didn't. this just came to me. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like something I should have spent a whole day thinking on. Um I don't know. I don't know. I mean, like, would I it guess... look more like the Man Booker? Or would it look more like the it NBA? Look, it would look more like the Man Booker, I okay. think, um, because I like the subjectivity of it. I like the room for quirkiness, and I mm-hmm. like the changing judges, you know, and all and all that kind of stuff. Like, I think it would. I think it would look that way. And I get why they're trying to. I just wish that they weren't trying to preserve it along line, colonial lines, <laughs> along lines that felt separate from what the award was, you know, like, but. Um, no, I think I think the the idea of the Booker, you know, is is a little bit more appealing to me. Just and just um, maybe I only say that in practice because, at least for me, by and large, the Man Booker is usually a better book than the National Book Award. At least yeah. like um, well, there's one for, book versus for like my many. tastes. Um, yeah. But um, I don't know. So it would be I would want more voices, right? Like yeah. I would, you know, I, you know, the Man Booker obviously has a huge talent pool, you know, feeding into it at this yeah. point. Um, and so I would, I like that. Would but... it be anyone translated or whatever? Just, I mean, obviously in English because you only speak English, but yeah, you know, would it, would it be any book that's in English anywhere eligible? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think that, I think it would have to be, I think that, yeah. um, yeah, no, I mean, I think if it's in English and it's, um, one that. Yeah, I mean, if it's if it's if it can sit on a shelf and you can decide if if you can reliably read two of them and decide which one you like better, then they should both be able to be considered. I guess is the way I think about it. You know, yeah. like it's um, without any sort of you know language barrier. So if I were making like if I guess that would be the more specific stipulation is like if I were making a um, award for English uh, for books written in English and published in English, that would be it. But like I'm obviously very into the idea of. Um, maybe starting to give some of these major awards to books that maybe aren't written in English. Um, but um, I don't know. We'll see. What about you? Yeah, I I like the I like thematic awards. You know, sure. like I love the specificity. Yeah, I like yeah. those more than like the Orange Prize for Women. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, Where yeah. like I I care less about the author and I care more about the content. So like okay. I think if I were to do a, I think I would have broad eligibility. Yeah. Um, just like you, but I think that I would maybe do something thematically. Like maybe it would be about, you know, um, you know, I don't know. We were just talking about colonialism, so that comes to mind. But like, not that I would want to have an award about like post-colonialism. Just that concept we know and love. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love post-colonial literature. Like, sure. I, you know, I think that it's really interesting. But, um, you know, something like that, or something I think I would choose thematically, um, but very like broad. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to look at a book and say, no, this isn't eligible because it doesn't meet this and this and this. Yeah. You know, like this is not a science fiction book because it doesn't take place right. in this sort of right. world. You know what I mean? But I think I think I like the subjectivity of having a favorite theme. Like yeah. the man booker this year kind of had a very interesting idea of borders. Yeah. Like kind of yeah, all that's just what happened. That's true. Like those six those six judges, that's just kind of what they were interested in. That's what resonated yeah. with them. Um it also that those subject those subjectivity um awards when they let or the subjectivity awards when awards allow for subjectivity 
like that, it does allow for a little bit more interaction with the cultural moment like yeah, that, I agree. you know? Um, I will say, though, that I do think that uh, the patchwork of lots of different kinds of awards like this is a good thing. You know, I mean, I've been thinking a lot today about, um, like, the purpose of an expressly national award. And I do think it's cool because it, when you mess with it and when you pl- play with the filters like this does, um, it offers a unique chance to get everybody to kind of think about, in terms of our literary scene, what it means to be American. Yeah. You know, and what Which it means. Which is a deep, interesting you know, conversation. And what, and what we're granting into our... Um, you know, American circles, you know, what we're like, I keep saying, oh, we're, what we're granting literary citizenship in our like broad cultural conversation. And that to me is really important too. And you can't have that without these, you know, expressly rigidly drawn national boards as well. So um, I don't know. Like, I think that the ideal situation is, um, you know, I think these conversations we're having, you know, I think the man Booker people, you know, they have somewhat of a point. And I think this is cool too. And I think that. Um, being able to look at all these awards in relation to each other is is kind of a cool thing. And it all strikes me as a really interesting way that we can all engage with what a good book is. And, like, you know, we've talked a ton about how a canon gets shaped, right? And this, to me, is some of that work, is figuring out, okay, well, which books have we decided are the good ones? That's what awards season is, right? Like yep. it's, And if, we, if we're messing and examining, you know, those definitions, then... Um, and we're doing it along sort of broader political or cultural movements, then I think you have a real chance to change the canon in all the ways that we want it to. I don't know. That's lovely. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see if this letter actually gets sent yeah. to to the organizers of the Man Booker. Um, this is just, you know, like the Guardian got a hold of this letter right. as it was still circulating. Right. Um, so this is definitely a conversation that will continue to play out, especially with the implementation of the National Book Awards new category. Um, but I want to transition into our final segment for the day, which is your writing tip. Um, this harkens back to what J.K. Rowling doesn't do. <laughs> and But it's simple tip, and it is this. Put it on the page. Yep. Like, just respect your readers enough and believe in your writing ability enough to let it stand on its own. You know, like, let it let it fly the nest. You know, make sure that if you want to include something in a book and it's important to you and you think it's going to be important to the reader and it's going to change how your reader engages with the work itself – Put it on the damn page. Well, I mean, if it's not there, it doesn't exist. You know, and like exactly. I know when I, you know, edit a lot and write, you know, when I um, when I'm working with novels as an agent, um, it's tricky sometimes because you'll probably have read something like four or five times eventually. And you start to, you know, as you're going through the pages, you're remembering outside conversations you had with the author you know, all this like extra context and extra special like thinking you've done on this book that it sometimes becomes difficult to remember what actually is in the book and what isn't, if that makes sense. And you have to kind of ask yourself as you edit all along the way, um, you know, is this thing that the author and I have, you know, spent all this time talking about wanting to be in the book and how we're seeing this certain character, is it actually there for someone who's had zero of these conversations with us? Is it there for a stranger? And like, so on the one hand, you do have this situation with Rowling, right? Where like, um, she's trying to retroactively impose things on the text and we can identify that as sort of silly and foolish in a straightforward way. But 
Um, it's trickier than that too because I think that it does speak to this idea of um, closeness with the book. And like you, when you're writing, there's so many thoughts that you have running through your head about what is in the book and what isn't and what should be and what shouldn't be and how you want certain things to look that the the actual output of what's actually there can sometimes be kind of tricky to see. And so it's a good question to constantly or a good mantra to kind of be repeating to yourself is like, if it's not there, you know, it's not like there's no you don't get to like include an explanation. You know, you don't. <laughs> it doesn't matter how eloquently you speak on your book tour about, you know, the book. Like if it's not in there, it's yeah. not in there. It doesn't and matter that you're planning on something else for book two. If exactly. it doesn't make sense on in book one exactly. and it's not there then you need to fix it. I just think it's it's an interesting conversation because so much of, um, you know, rallying aside, so much of writing is about showing the 10% of the 100% of the universe that you've been thinking about writing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like... It's got to be the right 10%. But like, and so, so much of what you think about a book never makes it onto the page. But the trade-off there is that if it's not there, then you don't get you don't get credit for having thought it. You know, like it has to actually be there. And I find that those kind of conversations are always the most interesting ones, whether it's, you know, my writing or with, um, you know, working with clients who have kind of poured over a manuscript so many times that what's real and what isn't has sort of become blurred. Mm. Lots of thoughts today. And we'd love to hear what you think. Specifically, it's annoyingly yeah. erudite this week. We'll yeah. see. <laughs> anyway, um, make sure to join us for our query show this week. And we'll see you for, again, our next full free episode next Tuesday.